Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And I'm joined here by my co-host, Ali Sherry. Welcome, Ali. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. And we're here today with Martin Gill, VP and Research Director at Forrester, to discuss the current state and more to the point, the future of digital transformation. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Awesome to be here. I want to start with the name. Digital transformation is used so prolifically, it means everything and nothing. And, you know, from my vantage point, the naming of it, the scoping of it Mm -hmm. is now getting in the way of real progress. You're echoing something I think we've been saying for quite a while now, which is if I take this back a couple of years ago when we were really ramping this research up, I remember having a call, and I won't name names, but I had a call with a vendor that said, uh, we do digital transformation. We really want to brief you. We want to talk to you. And I went, okay, right. And they, we got into it and said, yeah, we do digital transformation. We do contact center automation. And I kind of looked at them and went like, really? And, and from that point on, I've just seen this bandwagon of like ill-defined stuff that everyone's looking at going, digital transformation is a thing. Clearly, end user firms are spending money on it. They're budgeting for it. So we need to be marketing for it. We need to be doing it. And it's growing into into what like, like you say just something that doesn't really exist anymore it's too hard to define or it's too big so you're a big global organization like a bmw or whatever you're really going to transform that entire organization yeah i mean to me the the basic premise of it is that the external market is demanding a kind of operational experiential capability that does not exist in full form right now and for firms to catch up to that expectation, they're going to have to exploit technology like they have never done before. And it just happens to be at the same moment that AI comes into the ball game, that um, RPA begins to be normal, that VR that was once in the horizon begins to maybe be an operational weapon. I mean, you're certainly at a time where there's a lot of conflation of things. But at, at its heart, the question is, what is going to be the purpose and destiny of companies in a market that is just demanding something different and harder. That feels to me like the thing that's being solved. Yeah, and I, and I think you're, you're, what you're getting at is at the heart of all this is that something that's always been true, technology unlocks business opportunity. And, and that's basically the strap line for the, the events we just did in London and Chicago. That's what we're trying to explore. And that's not digital, it's about technology. You, you've listed off a whole bunch of technologies. When, when we started looking at digital transformation like five years ago, you had these definitions like smack stack, social mobile, all that kind of stuff. And we, smack we, stack? Yeah, you know, I heard that one. Social <laughs> no, mobile, no. analytics. That did not have a long life. Let's bring else. that one back. No, uh, no let's not. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it doesn't help to try and kind of create a wrapper around it because any any definition becomes immediately meaningless when a new technology comes along. Because And this isn't, isn't about the individual technologies. It's about... Business is fundamentally learning to internalize technology and build business models and go-to-market strategies that are technology-driven rather than technology bolt-on. And that's different. Yeah, it strikes me, I mean, if I had to put a title on it, it's about the purpose and destiny of a company versus advancing digital. It's the fearless remaking of a firm as a digital entity to compete in a marketplace that's going to reward that speed and that capability. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. But important about that is... What are you making? Does it change your purpose? Does it refine your purpose? Does it change the way you work, who you serve, how you serve them, your placement? I mean, there's a lot of decisions in which technology participates in or technology, using a John Deere example, gives you opportunity you never had before. So 
Well, let me go through the John Deere example because I want to use that as a starting point to what, what I think someone can mean by digital transformation. Yeah, so that, I mean, there, there's a good example of a big, complex organization. So it's it's easy to look at like a Netflix or whatever and go, hey, digital first organization or digital native or whatever. Everyone's got to be like that. They don't. Incumbent businesses have supply chains, factories, you know, physical assets, risk, lease portfolios. They're big, complex businesses that are hard to transform. But but John Deere, for, for, for anyone listening who doesn't know really, what's at the heart of the John Deere story is essentially a move away from we build tractors towards we, well, the first step is towards we sell tractors or monetize our assets on a lease basis or a kind of pay for service basis. Technology underpins that. It's IoT, it's you know, GPS tracking the vehicles, it's AI, it's optimization. So they move away from we sell you something through, through we lease you something to we enable you as a farmer to use our assets to drive value for yourself. And what do, what do farmers value? Farmers value crop yield. So John Deere are now moving because they have all this data, because their their vehicles are tracked, they you know they can they can monetize the data. They can now start helping farmers achieve what they need to achieve, which is better crop yield on the field, which equals profitability to the farmer. So it becomes an entirely new business model for a big agriculture company or big um, light manufacturing company where they're, they're no longer about asset production. The asset is a means to enable their customers to get the outcomes that they want. I'm anxious to understand how they did that because that's really at the crux of what we've been talking about with digital transformation is the different components that go into it, uh, the centers of excellence that, that some companies stand up. Um, how, how do they make that shift? Well, a, a lot of things come together. So it's... You know, it, it's <laughs> You've got to get away from just going, oh, it's culture, it's this, that, and the other, because they become instantly kind of meaningless. If you, if you unpick the journey, there's there's a lot of underpinning technologies. Like, first of all, we can track all the tractors. You know, we know where the assets are. And that's an IoT thing. That's a technology-driven thing. But then you need a mindset that actually takes that and says, okay, what other data sources do we apply? Weather data, you know, monitoring stations in the fields that allow them to assess the soil acidity or the moisture content of a field. Then you need an attitude that says, how do we link all these data sources together and then run IoT, uh, run AI or predictive analytics or whatever on top of it to actually understand what does that really mean to the farmer? And ultimately, you come back to a really deep understanding. What drives all this is an outside-in attitude, a really deep understanding of what do our customers want from us and how do we actually use the technology to better deliver the outcomes that they want. So you know, a farmer doesn't want a tractor. A farmer wants better crop yield. Well, I think there's no failure of imagination in that story. I mean, that's what strikes me, which is yeah. how do I participate in yield differently than I ever have before takes a deep knowledge of what it feels like to be a farmer yep. on a day-to-by-day basis and then an imagination of a value creation that wouldn't have otherwise existed. And I think, you know, my vantage point is that often strategy is I'm going to do what I'm doing now but slightly better. Well, it's, it's doing, yeah, doing old things in slightly new ways or polishing it. Like we call it bolt-on, essentially taking your existing business and slapping some technology onto it versus doing fundamentally new things in fundamentally new ways. And, and they're very different attitudes. And, and what you said about really understanding the farmer and understanding what matters to them, there are techniques like ethnographic research, like you know, the, the whole lean startup, minimal viable product type approach of like get something out to market, really deeply understand your customer's need, find a problem, solve that problem, 
and then constantly iterate on that problem to work out, are we still solving the right problem? Or has it changed? Do we need to pivot and do something else? There's, there's no one proven techniques out there now that actually help you unpick all of this. The challenge is you're a big business like John Deere, you're global, you have multi lines of business. It's a really complicated thing to look at because it's very easy to get lost in, well, where should we start? Which line of business? Which product? And, and I think that's where a lot of businesses get lost. I mean, it strikes me that there's at least two moments of great technology innovation during wars when there's just severity constraints and just real pressure to do something different. And during the space wars, if you look back at Kennedy launching, an amazing compression of technology builds because something other than normal was occurring. I think what we're seeing now is that there's not that same pressure, that people, are, people have options. And in options, they often will take the path most known, not the past least known. And it's interesting because, you know, we're going to be doing a podcast going forward about the real implications of global warming. And one of the real implications is agriculture. So you can imagine that if climate change goes to full force, much of what John Deere imagined was going to have to happen. They're going to have to have that optimization. They're going to have to have those, those, those incredible values associated with yields. The difference is John Deere is doing it on their own accord. They're doing it on their own thought process. And that's what's really good about that story. I think that's what's hard for organizations is how do I do it in a way that I create that moment. It's not created because of extraordinary forces outside my four walls. Well, yeah, and I think the, the other force though, that you didn't touch on is the, the thing we've talked about before, which is consumer adoption or business adoption of technology and what James McQuivey christened hyper adoption because we, we see things like mobile phones, et cetera, uh, uh, change, have uh, uh, been adopted so rapidly by everyone across the globe and we're beginning to understand how they change people's behaviors, their relationships with brands and their willingness to experiment, willingness to do new things. And the challenge a lot of brands face is actually consumers are changing. And, and I say consumers, it could equally be small businesses, it could be you know, whoever your customer is. They, they're able to change faster than you can pivot your business model. And that's at the, at the heart of a lot of the transformation stories we see, the successful ones. is It's, it's, pivot, it's, it's creating a platform for agility within a business that allows you to go out and experiment as your customers are changing and ideally get in front of them, but at best, you know, or worst rather, keep up with them. So to take off of what you just said, it seems like brands are coming around to the fact that digital is more about harnessing the habit that people have around digital. It's become intrinsic to, to being versus digital being a channel and I need to be there. Yeah, harnessing the habits, a really nice way of saying it. Digital's not a channel. And this is and you say brands are coming around to it. I'm not sure they are. I think the real leaders, yeah. Mm. But we've we've saying we've been saying for years, you know, mobile's not a channel, digital's not a channel. These are these are enabling technologies that allow you to create new opportunities with your customer. In our our digital maturity work, we look at these kind of three stages of maturity, and the first one is digital bolt-on. And if you think about a retailer, you know, where, where the, my background's in retail, so where all the retailers started was you're a you're a uh, offline retailer, and you start doing e-commerce. You bolted onto the side of the organization. That's a channel. But very rapidly, most retailers got to the point where the sales coming through digital channels were getting to the point where, we, you know, when I was back at Boots, we called it our biggest store. Digital's our big, oh, not even digital back then. E-commerce is our biggest store. And then eventually you get to the point where it's like 10%, 20%, 30% of revenue. You can't treat that as a channel anymore. That's a fundamental way of customers engaging. So we've been through this transformation once in the retail space and the banking space of e-commerce and e-business. What we're seeing now is a proliferation of channels and touch points and ways of engaging, 
And then like you mentioned AI, machine learning, things before, the, the amount of data that we now have on the back end and our ability to take that data and learn deep things about customer behavior and even like take context, take location and and predict what customers are going to do next. Where do we need to engage on what channel and what touch point? What's the next best offer for the customer? That We've unlocked all of that capability. And many businesses still think, well, we've got mobile app, we've got a website, we've got some stores. Bang, we're done. But the interesting thing is the firms that thought through more transformational ideas thought through in a harmonized physical and digital sense. So Amazon is redrawing the map on fulfillment. That's changing the fundamental role of a retailer. Um, We're going to place a lot more value on the nature of the truck that shows up to my door and who the brand is and the retailer. Does Does that retailer fall into the background? Payments, if payments on a digital sense is becoming a non-transaction and on a physical sense, also a non-transaction, and, you know, blockchain comes in, then payments redraws the entire path to purchase structure. So I think, I think it's the idea of redrawing the way the thing works. But I want to go back to a point of, of sort of why not. So we talked about the John Deere example, and there's others that say, we rethought the game. It just strikes me that as companies embark on this journey, whatever they think this journey is, that there is an underestimation of technology debt and how much real resources in terms of dollars, emotions, and time are spent just making the stuff work that was there. And the second one is the severe organizational inertia, which is organizations may have to be structured very differently to really marshal this in a very complete form. And lastly is it just doesn't feel like the organizational structure operations are fitted to what we would think to be a fast, nimble environment that could rapidly sense and respond to external dynamics. It just seems like there's a whole set of things staged against companies. I think that's completely true. And I think that's where where you started from, transformation, digital transformation, business transformation, whatever we call it. Ultimately, the the idea of taking an organization like John Deere or BMW or Shell or pick your favorite global organization – Pivoting that entire organization from an analog world to a digital world, that's mind-blowing in complexity. It, you know, these, these companies have hundreds of thousands of employees. They make millions of products a year. These are not small numbers. So it's no surprise. You see, like we've just mentioned BMW, one of the most successful things they've done from a, from a digital transformation, a kind of air quote transformation, wasn't even transformation. It's, it's BMW Drive, which is essentially a brand new business model. Because they looked at themselves and thought, well, we need to learn, we need to get to market, we need to find out what digital means to us, but we can't wait to pivot you know, our entire line of business. We can't wait to transform you know, an organization except to make a million cars a year. So we'll just take four people and go and do something new. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at, at some level, they can see mobility coming and what that does to the value chain. Let me get in front of it, and if I get in front of it fast enough, maybe I influence the nature of it. Maybe yeah, I become a different, maybe I sort of reset the value chain on my terms versus I have to crisis manage the idea of ride sharing eclipsing ownership. Yeah, I think that's entirely right. And, and But the only way you can do that is A, to, to build this new business and go and find out what it means and kind of having a, a cultural attitude towards risk in a different way where you say, well, actually, this might not work. And that's cool. But we've learned something as a result of it, or we've influenced an industry, or we've influenced a trend in the world. So let's talk about the stages uh, for a second, Martin. So most companies are born analog native. Yeah. They didn't imagine this kind of world. To your bolt-on strategy, they sort of take the first big leap 
which is to be digitally enabled. They digitally enable certain parts of their business, but yeah. the business stays relatively similar to what it was. Then the next big step is sort of the harmonize, where they rethink their business from a physical and digital standpoint. You use John Deere's example, and I think there's a Harmon Miller example as well, yeah. and a BASF example. There's several examples here that are, are useful. And then those that are born and operate in a purely digital standpoint, like Netflix. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the movement from stage two, bolt-on, to harmonize? Like what's the things that are – what are the to-dos there? Yeah. And then what, what's in the way as a pragmatic guide to firms that, again, great ambitions, great people, just it's really hard? Yeah, you mentioned Herman Miller. So Herman, uh, for those of you who don't know, they make furniture, chairs, you know, office furniture. That's as analog as you're going to get realistically – so um, they came and presented at our digital business forum in Chicago, and they talked about how they've basically started experimenting, or it's gone beyond experimenting, how they started IoT-enabling office furniture. And you think, well, like, oh, why the hell would you want to do that? That's just technology for the sake of technology. But actually what it's all about is a stunning stat that they shared with us was the average desk in New York costs, an office desk in New York costs $18,000 a year for an organization to, to maintain. So how many desks do you need to not have in order to actually start driving some cost out of your organization? Or what would the value be to a business of optimizing your office space when you're blowing $18,000 a year on an empty desk? So they started thinking, well, actually, if we, can, if we can provide data to office managers, facility managers, partly part, some of it's about how people sit and posture and how they're using their chair, but some of it's about unlocking the value of the, the asset, asset utilization. They can start creating a, a hybrid or harmonized digital business model. There's value in that data to an office manager and facilities manager. So their approach is to kind of, you, you, they're combining technology, IoT, you know, analytics type technology, with a new approach to business to, to actually create new value for the organization. So that's a really interesting example that you give. How do they approach it? Very similar to the other the other examples we talked about, it's it's a again it's it's really it's a, it's really easy to say oh different culture, but there's a, a kind of core to the cultural transformation that these firms go through and like Herman Miller embody. It's the willingness to take a risk and try something, and be okay with the fact that we might get it wrong. They 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 went and experimented. They went they did, they didn't know that this was going to work but they were willing to take a risk. They were willing to experiment on a small scale, put some money into it, prove, prove out the value case. Again, do the research, go talk to the, the, their customers who are like facilities managers. You mentioned before about you know, really, John Deere really understanding what drives farmers. A lot of this, a lot of their strategy, Herman Miller's strategy, is driven by really deeply understanding what do our customers care about? You know, to some extent, it's a nice furniture, it's a nice design, but really what they care about is not blowing $18,000 a year on a desk no one uses. And that understanding of what what's the value in their product set unlocks an idea about, oh, okay, if we could help them with that, there's value in it to us. What strikes me about that, Martin, is that I can imagine being in that room when that idea was surfaced. And I, I was not there. I don't know if this yeah. was a conversation, but I can imagine the following. Let's say Julie presents that idea. And then I'm Bob. And Bob says, wait a minute. $18,000 a desk, that's good. We want to sell more of them. And you're advocating that we might sell less of them. I don't get it. And you can imagine that all the traditional sales tactics just get in the way. Like why would we ever want to be in a business that has as an outcome 
we sell less things because that's our economics right now is to sell things. That's a, that's a silly idea. It just strikes me that that's the first hurdle you got to get through, which is to imagine a different economic. It's learning to measure the right things. And it's not measuring channel success. It's measuring business success. The banks have kind of cracked this, um, particularly some of the, the Australian banks like ComBank and the Spanish guys at BBVA. They, they understand if I, if I help you as a customer achieve your outcomes, you are more likely to recommend me. You're more likely to hold more products with me. You're more likely to spend more money with me. So you almost like the, you see it in the kind of banking strategies like from from Combank and the Australian guys, where they're moving away from we sell mortgages, we sell like loans to we help you move house, we help you retire. Sounds really trivial, and it's not even digital, but it it sounds really trivial. But the the attitude that a bank has if they say we help you move house, they do a bunch of different things. They they relate to customers in a different way. They engage upstream. They start building digital tools that link into real estate searches. They get to the emotional engagement about, you know, I want to buy my dream home, not I found my dream home, give me some money to buy it. Entirely different conversation. So when they achieve that, and digital plays a huge part in that because it, it democratizes and scales that kind of relationship in a way that we never could in the past. When you get to that, what they're universally finding is customer satisfaction goes up, product holding, net promoter score, customer lifetime value goes up. So you might, in the banking case or the Herman Miller case, you might sell less things in one channel, but you're selling more in other channels and your you know, long-term value of the customer almost universally in these cases goes up and up and up. It's not just the idea that they could sell more things but differently. It's the idea that they can imagine a new revenue stream, a new economic value that they're producing creates more leverage with the customer loyalty yep. is leverage. It's a great economic engine. And, but I, but I, I go back to that same concept, which is digital transformation for me sometimes imagines digitizing the existing state versus reimagining a different business. And I still feel like that, that sort of, that basic point is lost all too often in the marketing of digital transformation. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of okay to digitize what you've already got because, we're, you know, we're not advocating at all throw everything out and start again because that's impractical for most organizations. But the, in all of these stories, what we tend to see is that you've got a kind of cash cow business that's generating revenue for you and you don't want to risk that. But, and transforming that is hard. It's too hard. So what you can do is start creating new experiments alongside and some of those experiments will flower and become awesome and some of them will fail. And it's, we, so we're in the middle of this piece of research, which we've kind of tentatively titled How to Fail and Not Get Fired. And it's all about, it's not just how to do innovation, it's about the attitude that you need. Because innovating and doing all of this transformation we're talking about, we have this thing about fail fast, fail quick, fail cheap and all that. But you're still failing. And you still like the idea of fail, learn. Fail, well, yeah, and that's, that's at the heart of it. Almost everyone we've interviewed so far on this stream of research has basically said it's about pivoting away from failure towards becoming a learning organization. And that's a mindset shift. Let's go back to the three things I brought up before, which is the starting point of folks that have digitally enabled and tried to get to a harmonized state, which will be, if we're successful, the bulk of companies which carry physical assets. Technology debt is, is, is bigger than they thought. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to say that that mobile phones are moving fast because that's an asset that can be put in the manufacturing floor, that apps are changing fast. But to change an architecture is, that's a mining expedition. That's changing 
data, data governance, system of records, middleware. I mean, the whole thing is in play. There's real work to be done. Have companies taken hold of how much real hard work happens in the non-sexy part of the technology stack? No, and I, th I think this is the, the thing that firms like Amazon get right and the things that traditional incumbent organizations still need to take on is this, this link between business and IT, and I hate the words because they're, they're outdated, they're outmoded, they drive a conflict, but ultimately you, there's, a, there's a strong link between the, the, the architectural model you have and your ability to change at the kind of processor experience level and the organization structure you can embrace and then the way you can connect your customers. And most firms haven't grasped that. Most firms still have this whole model of, we've got SAP and that runs all of our supply chain. And the unit, the, we haven't really turned it, but like the unit of change in that organization is vast. And we have to release the entire SAP stack. We have to, you know, that takes ages and it's full of risk because that could break the organization. That inherently inhibits the ability of these firms to move fast. Whereas an Amazon has, un, has, has been invented with an architecture that's modular, that's atomized, that's componentized, and they can wrap these like, famous two-pizza teams around it. And that allows them to innovate at this ridiculous speed because the level of risk each team carries is so much smaller. The unit of change is so much smaller. To get there, let's go back to John Deere. You're John Deere, your global supply chain, your global manufacturing, you're running these massive factories building tractors. They've got supply chain systems. They've got SAP. They've got all of them. I mean, I'm not picking on SAP in particular, which is an easy example to pick. You know, the, these, these legacy incumbent architectures, they need to change. And that's not going to happen until CIO, CMO, chief digital officer, well, you know, who, all these different people come together and realize we've got to unpick our organization from a, from a technology and an organization and a process point of view. We've got to pull it all apart and put it back together again because the, the guys that have you know, come in in the last few years, like Amazon, few years, 20 years, mm. you know, they, they've, they've started on a fundamentally different footing of business and technology working hand in hand, right. whereas most incumbents haven't. It was interesting. I was talking to an insurance company that part of their mindset is preparing for mobility, a mobility environment where usage-based insurance is normal, yep. meaning as opposed to an annualized car policy, it's going to be a policy by the journey. I don't own the car. I'm just ride-sharing, and each time is a different policy. And the terms of that policy will be set by the weather, time of day, traffic, whatever, whatever the conditions yep. are. And so we went to the point of saying, well, how much budget is allocated for – just keeping stuff working to, to more transformational things. I mean, they said it was roughly 60, 40, 60, keeping stuff working, 40 transformation, which is a pretty aggressive stance. Then we changed the question, which is uh, emotionally, how much time and energy is really spent just trying to make it work versus trying to innovate? And then they changed the numbers to 90, 10. Yeah. So 90% of the emotional equity of a firm is being placed on just the existing state of the business. We then ask the next question, which is on a per person basis, how many people are involved in making it work versus how many people are involved in innovating? And they use the same 90-10. And you can kind of tell a story, just simple math, which is how hard is it for them to change their very nature of working? 90% of the emotional equity and time spent is, is spent in, a, in a, a mode, a thought process, a context that's not tomorrow. It's more yesterday. And ultimately, the digital transformation is moving that 90% to being 20% and 80% is working in a new dimension. So even in your BMW example, like you can start with a minor minority, but at some point in time, you have to cross that tipping point. Yeah. 
that to me painted a fairly meaningful ditch to come out of. I'm picturing spreadsheets and project plans of we're at 90% now, let's get to 80% next year, let's get to 70%, you know, like you can see how digital transformation or whatever we're calling it becomes a strategic initiative that's on a PowerPoint slide and in roadmaps and hard to be become reality. Yeah, there's got to be a concept of sort of aggressive cannibalization. They realize that the market is going to chew on their core business ultimately, and they want to be the ones that do it. And so it's not the 90 to 80 to 70. It's the idea, I'm going to stand up something that actually stands alone, produces revenue, and begins to intentionally cannibalize, but in an aggressive stance because the market's moving too, too fast for me to go to 90, 80, 70, 60 in that context. I mean, it seems like that was the heart and soul of what BMW was, was trying to get done or getting done. Yeah, and, and they're a long way away from that 50-50 pivot, but the cannibalization is an interesting word because it's, if I go again back to the retail background, the the retailers all worried about e-commerce cannibalizing store sales and demonstrably for the ones that have succeeded is true, like, I hate the word, but omni-channel retailers. It doesn't cannibalize. It creates a halo effect of people buy more stuff from you because you, you have more routes to market and it's easier for customers to get to you. So if you, if you measure a product or a channel in isolation, yeah, you're getting cannibalized. And if, you know, if, if I'm your CEO and I say your target is optimize the stores, and then I'm going to launch an e-commerce business over here. And then I'm going to launch like a uh, IoT enabled, some other kind of business over there. And I'm managing each of those businesses separately and not grasping that actually they all benefit each other. And they have this, this halo effect of creating a deeper, richer customer experience. And, you know, go back to my thing about being able to measure customer lifetime value. If I can measure the impact of that at the organizational level, then I have a really different conversation with you because I'm no, it's not about cannibalization anymore. It's about a shift. Right. There's a thought process that scenario planning is coming back in vogue. Yep. Um, and I think this is, there's a reason for it, which is I think people have to imagine what 2021 will look like, what will act like. And more to the point is if a competitor came in unencumbered by legacy assets or legacy attitudes, what would they do? I have to do that. And I think that's a very different strategic impulse than I'm going to sort of move my, evolve at whatever pace I can is what's true about 2021, if someone came in, again, unencumbered, what would they do is I have to match that and be operationally savvy by 2021. That's a heck of a different kind of journey. It seems to me that scenario planning is a key linchpin to this, which is create a vivid view of the future versus sort of this evolution that AI is becoming more important or RPA is a big deal or you know whatever it might be from a technology track. What, what does the market act like demand from anybody who's going who's gonna to either compete or win? A scenario plan is an interesting angle to go at because it's, it kind of talks to this problem that businesses face of horrific complexity. Complexity in channels, complexity in changing customer, pace of change, all these things. And, it, and, it, and it's a tool that helps us actually unpick many, many possible futures and then work out, well, what do we do about these different things? And again, and again actually, interestingly, you've you kind of back in this mindset of it's okay to fail because a bunch of those scenarios won't come true and you you've, you've spent a bunch of time planning for things that are never going to come true but actually if you do it they help drive thinking and mindsets and and you know inspiration and ideas into what do we do today so I want to touch on something that you mentioned before so the marketing of digital transformation so there's a whole slew of words that have almost become dirty words in yep. the industry that actually have real value behind them. Things like 
creating a MVP of something, getting yep. something out, failing fast, b- becoming more agile. Even the term platform has its own connotations. There's real sort of value nested behind those words. They become dirty words because people don't understand them. Um, and they're, they're, again, like digital transformation, are shrouded in mystery. MVP, minimum viable product. Oh, that just means you're delivering something that doesn't work. No, it doesn't. It means you're testing an idea. And a valid outcome of a test is it sucks, no one wants it. But hooray, we've learned something. And if you can if you can scope and like agile and whatever, if you can scope that experiment as a low cost, you know, learning exercise, we spent twenty thousand dollars to learn there is no future in that particular product line. Brilliant, that's better than spending ten million dollars on building a product that no one wants. But they, again, these these terms like digital transformation, they become shrouded in people's interpretations of them. And they risk, yeah, they risk getting lost. There's a funny phenomenon that this is a, a buyer's market, customer-led market. And another way of thinking about it, this has become marketer's market, and which is more of a su- supply-side phenomenon, which is, you know, at this point in time, it's probably true that the technology providers know more about the ins and outs of the technology than the buyers. It's just moving so damn fast. And then marketers get hold of it. And, you know, right now I have a blockchain glass of water over here, which is worth much more than the other (laughs) glass of water, which is not called blockchain. And uh, there's a certain injury to the market that takes place because of that. What's interesting about that is I think the the words have resonated up to the board and the C-suite, whereas they didn't used to. And that's that's a real core thing here. The, uh, The incumbent organizations we've talked about in the past, technology was a cost center. Technology was a problem. It would fail and go wrong. You know, it, was, it was something the CIO had to worry about. It wasn't a business driver or a business enabler. At, at best, it was like an efficiency play. My view, that's fundamentally changed. Technology unlocks opportunity in a way that it never has done before. And the, that pace is getting faster, the impact, the scale, the opportunity is growing. And unless, I'm getting all serious now, unless like boards and executive teams can actually fundamentally internalize technology and learn to go to market in new ways, they're in trouble because they're comp- you, know, you mentioned before, their competitors are going to come along and disrupt them. And there's a, inside that, there's a piece of advice, which is to refine the board so that someone who is tech savvy is on the board. Oh, for definite. So it's no longer sort of, you know, outside forces, but they become part of the way they think. Um, I'm going to do the cardinal sin. I'm going to introduce an acronym called BPOP, blank piece of paper. I think that's, to me, ultimately what's the problem which is everyone's working off a very busy piece of paper. All that was is on the paper, and they're just sort of trying to make all that was work in the future. Yep. And new entrants have a blank piece of paper. Again, they're unencumbered. And they can imagine a world without a placing all of their biases upon that world. They can look at it in a very free sense. Go back to scenario planning. I really, I do believe that there's a desperate need to have sessions where there's a blank piece of paper and all that's true about that company is not entering into that room because that's in the way. It's not, it's not culture. It's the, it's the habits and the, in the biases or decisions made three years ago that appear now to be religion. Well, and complexity. And you mentioned like technology, legacy, technology, dare, whatever you want to call it. The, that's the, the thing that startups are unshackled by is they don't have all that legacy. And and usually, well, not usually, the successful ones have a laser-like focus on we solve one problem and we solve it really well. And yeah, maybe they grow from there, they become Amazon or Netflix or whatever, and they do a whole bunch of other things. But ultimately, you can boil them all back down to we're going to solve one problem 
And then we're going to work out how to monetize that and grow that, scale that using technology. Big traditional incumbent organizations solve like 17,000 different problems for a million different customer segments and they get mired in complexity. And they get mired in their internal complexity. Yeah. And they can't see the outside market for what it's going to be at that point. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a real strong lesson in the, the BMW Drive, the John Deere, the Herman Miller, all those kind of guys about actually it's sometimes the right answer is to start again and do something new because it's just easier. So in this podcast, we started with the concept that digital transformation is poorly named and poorly scoped. This goes to, in some cases, affirming or refining the purpose of the company, imagining a market that's very different, you know, 2021 being a mark, and imagining your role in that market, your essence to be different, and using digital strategically in that purpose. So I'm going to give you the soapbox. What, what is the, the thought process that you have in terms of companies really with and great ambitions, great people, great heart and soul, but really struggling against the headwinds? Yeah, the, the purpose is a really interesting piece. I, I doubt the purpose of an organization changes because I think if, you've, if you as an executive team, if you've got that right in the first place, digital is not changing your purpose. What it is changing is the opportunities that I think you, you mentioned about that, how you imagine that purpose, how you go to market. That's, that's what we've lost. We've, we've got all tied up in which technologies, which process, what does it mean? But actually, fundamentally, it's about you know, becoming an organization that's, that's fit for survival in the digital world, that, that understands how to make money out of technology. Because we're, everyone's becoming a technology business. That's dead fright. But it's not damn true. We're, we're on a pivot towards technology being the fundamental driver of business growth. And that's the mindset shift that I think executive teams and leaders need to take their organizations through. It's great to have you on the podcast and good to see you. Martin. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>